You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 13 of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. This episode is all about how the latest research in neurobiology intersects with the traditional goals of yoga. Making connections between science and yoga philosophy is a huge passion of mine, so I am particularly pleased to share this episode with you. As I'm recording this intro, today is the second day in a row of steady rain here in Asheville, North Carolina. Usually rainy days make me feel kind of lethargic and sleepy, but right now I feel super inspired because I just came home from having a meeting with a wonderful yoga teacher who I'm coaching on creating and implementing a plan for her business. Watching the puzzle pieces fall into place for this thoughtful, creative, and caring yoga teacher And seeing her start to feel empowered and confident in her business plan, I can hardly even begin to describe how rewarding this is. As yoga teachers, we pour so much of ourselves into our teaching that we're even more emotionally invested and connected to our business than the average entrepreneur. However, we also often have very few tools, even fewer tools than average, to know how to create a business that makes sense for us. As a client I was working with yesterday pointed out, even when we do have the knowledge, we're often too close to apply it. So it's my privilege and my passion to teach, guide, and hold space for yoga teachers to create a thriving business that stays true to their values while allowing them to fulfill their purpose in life. In today's episode, my guest, Christine Coveri-Weber, talks about the concept of swadharma, or our life's purpose, as one of the goals of a yoga practice. I love Coveri's ability to take complex topics and organize them into easily understandable and digestible systems, and this is what she does for yoga and neurobiology in this episode. She packs a whole bunch of information into a short amount of time, so this may be an episode that you want to listen to several times. I also took notes while we were talking, and I made those notes available to download for members of my email list. So if you're not on there yet, go to teachingyoga.net slash join to get on the list, and you'll not only get the bonus content for this episode, but you'll have access to the bonus content for all the episodes that there is bonus content for. I have known Coveri for over a decade. We've been living in the same community, and it's a relatively small community. So when you live in proximity to people, you kind of, even when you don't spend a ton of time with them, you get to know them by proxy. I have spent time with Coveri, and I I do know her and respect her, but just everything I've heard over the years, I have this sense of her as somebody with a tremendous amount of integrity. And Every interaction that I have with her personally supports that. I'm, I'm, she's really one of the people who I can say personally that I know really walks her talk. 
Kaveri has been studying yoga and holistic healing for nearly 30 years. She's been advocating, speaking, and teaching about yoga since 1995, and she's been training yoga teachers since 2003. I find her to be a wealth of knowledge who combines thoughtful inquiry with real-life practice. Kaveri does share a bit about her background on the podcast, so I'm going to let her speak for herself so that we can get started with today's conversation. Kaveri, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am so excited. Me too, because <laughs> I don't get to talk to you enough. I know. We, we've known each other. We were we were chatting about this just a minute ago that we've known each other for probably about at least 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I have ever gotten the chance to tell you how much I enjoy your classes. Oh, thank you. I really just appreciate how you're able to explain and, and kind of merge the experiential with the, the thought, the philosophy behind it. I just love it. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to hear your perspective today and all the things that you've been working on. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> so let's begin with uh, a little bit about your journey here. I know it's been a long journey. I had a hippie social studies teacher <laughs> in seventh grade. Did I ever tell you that? I believe I've heard that before, but I'm sure that my <laughs> listeners have not. So, Oh, actually, it was, it was sixth grade, not seventh grade. It was sixth grade, yeah. And so I remember she wore long, flowy skirts and, and something like Birkenstocks. But this would have been the mid-70s, so I'm not exactly sure what she was wearing on her feet. But she was definitely a hippie. And I joined yoga club in sixth grade. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, we just did, I don't even remember the asanas, but I still use some of the relaxation techniques that she taught us back then. And, and it was a really deep experience for me because I remember that was the first time I ever had kind of a meditation, a meditative experience of, of being really peaceful and feeling something like a slightly different dimension, sort mm-hmm. of, you know. Um, and as a 11 and 12 year old, that was, it was really transformative for me. And I think it informed my interest in yoga later when I got it, I got back into yoga late in college with one of my good dear friends, um, Maria Kirsten, who is a yoga teacher, a very well-known yoga teacher in Australia now. So we lost touch for a while. And then when we reconnected, we found out we were both yoga teachers. So that was fun. So uh, yeah, so I got back into it a a bit in college. Um, That was in the late 80s when everybody was doing aerobics and we'd sort of sneak off and and do yoga in the gym with this real swami. We had a swami for a teacher. He wore, you know, he had a turban and everything, which he took off. And uh, and and we stood on our heads, and you know, uh, we were on those big squishy wrestling mats because it was before sticky mats. Um, so Maria really introduced me back into yoga in college, and that was in grad school, right after college. Um, and, and, that, and that got me back into this, this sort of, you know, just, just really the exploration of what yoga was about and trying to f- help me define myself, I think, as a young person. 
And then I went and, and moved to, um, well, I was living in California for a couple of years after college. And I got to do a little bit of yoga out there. But even then, so that was 1990, 1989 to 1991, I was living in San Francisco. And even then there was like, there were like two yoga centers in all of San Francisco. And I did some yoga over in Berkeley with some of my teachers at the Acupressure Institute. So I got into like acu yoga, how to do acupressure with yoga. It was actually kind of cool. Um, and then I moved to Asia for four years. Um, and I lived in Japan. I met some swamis when I was living in Japan. And because I tried Zen and all that stuff in Japan, I tried, you know, I sat Zazen in the temples and did that stuff. I was very interested in Asian philosophy and practice, but Zen didn't like do it for me the way that yoga did. So I met some swamis and that got me interested in going to India. So I spent a, about a year and a half traveling around Southeast Asia and, and India. And I spent a lot of time at ashrams during that time, a lot of time meditating in some of the ancient meditation grounds in, in Bengal. And, and I went all over India and I, I was at Amma's ashram back then and uh, Sai Baba's and a bunch of other little ashrams. So, I, you know, that was an interesting time for me. It was a really formative time for me. When I got back to the States in 90, 1995, I didn't really want to do anything else. So I just started teaching yoga and I studied body work at that time too. I was doing some body work. But so, yes, yeah, so I've been teaching since late 1995. Mm -hmm. And I started training yoga teachers in 2003, mostly because I felt like not that we needed more yoga teachers, but that we needed that the practices could be enhanced by teacher trainings that included a lot more focus on personal practice, meditation, yamas and niyamas. So that's been the focus of my trainings. And then I started training behavioral health professionals in 19, no, sorry, not 19, 2000. In 2008, I started my programs at the Mountain Area Health Education Center. And so those were those are pretty groundbreaking in terms of being the first programs in the country that were offered by a major continuing education center for mental health professionals. So, um, and now we have a program that we've run several times there and people come from, from all over the country actually for that program. So that's, that's been pretty exciting too. So that's where I am. That's kind of where I've been. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's a lot. And um, one of the things that I remember about you is your ability to kind of bridge the worlds of, you know, the spiritual seeker path with the medical scientific path. Mm. So that's really cool. And do, are you willing to tackle the question <laughs> of what is yoga? Because that's a really great place to start. Uh, yeah. what, you know, especially when we're talking about bridging these these worlds to get on the same page. Well, yeah, and and I always do that because yoga means anything today, right? It it just means so many different things. So I think it's really important to unpack your terms and so you can look at them and know where the vantage point is that you're talking from, right? So from my perspective, I like to go back to the Yoga Sutras, Yoga Shitta Vritti Nirodha, which means yoga is a cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, right? And then the second then the sutra after that. Uh, 1.3 says tadadrastu swarupe avastanam, right? So, so why do you want to stop your mind? So you stop your mind because 
then you know who you are, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Essentially the next, the next part of the Yoga Sutra. So I would say that yoga is a practice of knowing who you are. And I, I shouldn't say it's a practice of, of knowing who you are. It's a practice there, there by which, through which you, you initiate the process of uh, discovering your identity, right? So it's a, it's a process and that, that idea, it, it, who you are is not something sort of fixed, although, you know, the yogis would say there's this, this uh, infinite consciousness or this infinite wisdom or um, pure awareness, you know, those, those sorts of things are used for who you truly are. But then there's this, and that would be like an absolute, right? And then there's this relative truth of who you are, you know, <laughs> and that changes and that uh, hopefully through the practices deepens in the direction of sort of understanding this pure awareness but but who you are means you know here you are on this planet in this body come here for some specific purpose and some some reasons and and so how do you define that you know and and i think that's such an important piece i love the story of the buddha when when you know during his enlightenment process and and he there's, there's one point after he's been sort of attacked by, by the devils and by Mara the devil and, and um, there's, there's this whole thing going on with him where he's having to fight off all these different attacks on his way to enlightenment. And then at this point where he's sort of realized, him, he's coming to realize himself, he puts his hand on the ground. And that putting his hand on the ground to me, in my mind is saying, I am of this earth, I'm embodied, I'm here. Mm. And so because I'm here on this earth, my body is an essential vehicle for this process. And, and in being this essential vehicle, I got to figure out what to do with this body. Right? And so that's what I would say yoga is about, is helping us figure out what am I supposed to do in this embodied experience? What is my identity? Who am I? And the yogis might say that, that swadharma, you know, your, your own trying to understand your personal uh, reason for existence. So that, that I would say is from the philosophy side of things. And then fast forward a couple thousand years I like to use the definition from the Kripalu Research Consortium, Tim Gard and his team. And they, they define yoga for the purposes of understanding the mechanisms by which yoga helps to create more physiologic and psychological balance and health. They define yoga as four process tools. And you know these tools. Everybody knows these tools. Uh, ethics, yamas and yamas, right? And then movement or asana, and then breath control or pranayama, and then meditation, the last four limbs. So I think that system that Patanjali gave, those eight limbs of yoga, you break them down into four process tools, ethic, ethical engagement, mindful movement, uh, breathing practices, and meditation. And if we can define yoga from that perspective, we can see it as a system, and systems tend to work better when you use them all together and not let them just sort of fall apart into one of their components. Um, and so if we can start from that definition, then we can have a conversation about how these practices are beneficial. Great. And you know I, what I really love about going back to that first little conversation, the first part of your definition is the richness of the dichotomy where there are definitely some schools of yoga that are really just focused on that first part that, you know, that reaching the ultimate remembrance of 
our true nature, which is maybe not so practical, doesn't offer us the same practical tools as having this more encompassing intention to both find the swadharma, the, the embodied intention and the embodied truth of who we are and the ultimate truth of who we are at the same time. That makes things really rich. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, there, you've heard this, this um, expression, spiritual bypass surgery, <laughs> right? <laughs> like some people just want to do the spiritual bypass surgery and, and go right into that idea of like, I'm just, I'm perfect the way I am. I'm pure awareness, blah, 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 which is great if you can do that. But for the mere mortals of us out there, um, that's what the practices are for is to help us, you know, unpeel, you know, peel back the layers of the onion or however you want to say it, shine up the diamond so that you can start to understand who you are. And, and I, I believe that life is about two things. And one is about sort of going within and refining that understanding of who you are and kind of looking at all the messiness and, and, you know, self-acceptance is really important, but also we need to move, we need to shift things in ourselves to have better relationships with ourselves and with, and with others. And then the second piece is then taking that wisdom and, and helping other people to ameliorate the suffering that they're dealing with, to mitigate the suffering that they're dealing with. So, and I think yoga practice offers us um, the capacity to do that. And I know that over the course of the past, I didn't do all the math, but it's been like over 20 years, right? <laughs> of, of your, yeah, of your exploration. I know that you've developed some pretty clear ideas about, you know, effective ways of, of approaching this, this goal. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's, I've been really working on clarifying that and building models and frameworks to help better understand how we can use the practices in a way that is helpful. So I call my practice and my teaching subtle yoga, S-U-B-T-L-E, subtle yoga. And I, I started in, and the way that that started was I, when I moved to Asheville in 2001, I was just sort of surrounded by vinyasa, the vinyasa craze had really taken, taken hold here. Um, whereas where I had been living, which was kind of in the suburbs in New Jersey, there just wasn't a lot of yoga back then. I mean, there was some, but it, it hadn't gotten to nearly the level that it was at when I came to Asheville. And so I was surrounded by vinyasa and everybody seemed to want vinyasa. And I was like, okay, I'll figure out how to teach vinyasa. So I just started teaching, you know, vinyasa flows because that's what people seem to want. And then one day I went to my class and it was raining. There weren't that many people there. I said, well, what do you, what do you folks feel like doing today? And someone said, well, can we do what you do at home? And I was like, what I do at home? You don't want to do that. Don't you want to do like sun salutations and stuff? And they were like, no, show us what you do. So then, so I was like, okay. So I just went through my practice with them. And at the end they said, can we do that every week? <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe some people do want to do this. So I, I, that was the birth of subtle yoga. And, and basically what, I, what I've done, you know, I've studied with a lot of different teachers, particularly Gary Kraft. So he's one of my main teachers. But lots of, I had lots of teachers in India. Nobody would ever know, you know, Bengali renunciates and stuff. 
and basically, and they, you know, the, these, these, are, these original kind of teachings that are more mindful and slow and repeated poses, that's kind of the basis of, of subtle yoga. And, and it's something that um, I feel really passionate about. And, and I didn't really understand how to explain the value of it to people that thought that yoga should be more like exercise. And, and so it took me a lot of years to start to understand. And really the neuroscience wasn't there either. I have to say that, you know, the neurobiology wasn't there. That we, that only in the past few years have we sort of understood that there's a science to slow movement and, that, and not just movement, but slow practice, uh, slow breathing meditation, mindful practice that we, we haven't really understood. We hadn't really understood that before. So now I'm, I'm, I've worked on a way to start to be able to explain that, to help people understand that it's just as important. These kinds of slow movement, slow breathing, mindful practices are just important to, as, to your health as cardiovascular exercise or fitness-based yoga. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about the evolution of the science that you've, I know, have been following really closely? Um, sure. So, well, in 1969, uh, a guy named Dr. Kenneth Cooper came out with a book called Aerobics. And that really started, and so 1969, you know, Don and Betty Draper are still around then. So you got to think about like, that time, you know, people are not really exercising for the sake of exercise. There was, you know, people might've been like playing tennis or something, but like the jogging craze hadn't even started, you know? So this guy comes out with this book called Aerobics and it really spawns the whole cardiovascular fitness industry, I would say. That was the beginning of it. Most of us don't even know about that because the the thing is that for 50 years, we've been so bombarded with messages that strong exercise is what you need to be healthy that it's just become a part of the common discourse, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's accurate. There's, there's just a ton of data about how good exercise is for you. There's tons of data about it, you know. So I would say, like, like that's where the science started to get us to understand that fitness is a thing and it's really important, and we need to spend time doing, you know, sweating, and all of that has evolved tremendously, as I'm sure you know, over the past 50 years. And now we're at a point where it's like, you know, hit workouts are better, and like, but you know, everybody's having like these debates about what's the best kind of exercise and burning fat, blah blah blah. But but there's no doubt that it's etched into our consciousness as a culture that cardiovascular exercise is super important for your health. All that being said, did you know that only about 20% of the population actually exercises? <laughs> I believe it because when you, when you were saying that whole uh, talking about the debates of what's the best exercise for you, what flashed in my head is the one you'll do. <laughs> <laughs> the one you'll actually do. <laughs> that's the best you'll one. Do. That's fun. Yeah. So, so that's, that's something, you know, and then the latest polls that came out about yoga is about 10% of the population does any yoga at all that doesn't i'm sure it's much less than that that does yoga regularly so and there's a going to be crossover between the exercisers and the people who do yoga most of them are going to fit in that 20 percent of the population so all that being said in, in about um around 2000 or so 2001 we started to see the first functional mris coming out from labs like of sarah lazar and richard davidson about the benefit of meditation. 
And they were looking at, well, Richard Davidson looked at Tibetan monks. They were also looked at some Christian nuns, you know, so they were, they were seeing like, what is meditation doing to the brain and how is it affecting health? So that stuff started just at the beginning of this century, right? 18 years, about 18 years. And the lot, there were a lot of mindfulness researchers out there putting out study, different studies about the benefits of mindfulness, benefits of meditation. So, you know, in addition to Richard Davidson, you have people like John Kabat-Zinn, of course, who did a tremendous amount of research. Um, and we have a lot to be grateful to him for, for putting mindfulness on the map. Now mindfulness is on the map, but it's kind of exciting, I think. But what happened was some of those mindfulness researchers like Norman Farb and Eric Soonan, Catherine Kerr, Bud Craig, there, there are a bunch of a bunch of them. They started saying, well, wait, we've looked at we've looked at meditation, we've looked at mindfulness, but what about the body? We need to start looking at the body in this and what effects these kinds of mindful practices are having on the body. Um, and then the research started to emerge, and I would say it's been, you know, it's maybe 10 years, but really only in the past five years we've started to see some really exciting studies that are showing the benefits of mindful movement. And th these are different benefits than you get from cardiovascular exercise. Now, of course, there's some crossover, but largely they're different. And so the benefit of cardiovascular exercise, everybody knows, right? It's gonna be, it's good for your heart. It, it has many different metabolic and, and uh, physiologic, other physiologic benefits, right? But what they started to have these mindfulness research started to put out is this idea of interoception and homeostasis. The homeostasis, and really homeostasis is a bad or sort of, I shouldn't say bad, nothing is bad, but it's, a, <laughs> it's kind of an old word now, this idea of homeostasis, because really what they're understanding is, is something called homeodynamic balance, right? We're really coming into homeodynamic balance rather than homeostasis because your body is constantly adapting to all sorts of things that are going on externally and internally. So now, can, you, can you just pause for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> because not everybody has studied physiology. So sure. not everybody, you know, probably people have heard homeostasis, but right. in this context, you know, can you just explain what what the idea is and, and how that's being evolved. Sure. So homeostasis means basically finding balance in your system, right? So we need to come into balance physiologically. Uh, for example, you walk into a hot room and your body starts sweating. And that sweating process is your body trying to cool off and get back to homeostasis, get a thermoregulation, get back to homeostasis, right? Or let's say you're sitting down and then you stand up quickly. Well, the baroreceptors in your system have to adjust so that you're like, so you don't fall over, right? So your blood pressure has to shift when you stand up quickly. Uh, for your lying down and go to standing up, your blood pressure has to be able to adapt. That capacity to adapt is gives us an indication of how well you can go in back to homeostasis to balance right a balance is physiologic and it's unconscious but there's also balance that's emotional and semi-conscious 
And then there's balance that is cognitive and completely conscious, right? Mm -hmm. so, so we have different uh, balances in the system. Some of them are balances that have to do with things like blood pressure, breathing rate, heart rate, uh, thermoregulation. All of, you know, those are unconscious. They're handled largely by the unconscious parts of the brain, the brainstem largely. And feedback that it's getting from the body, right? So this is where this body mindfulness stuff, stuff comes in. Then we have stuff that's semi-conscious. And what we know is that um, it, these, these unconscious and semi-conscious balance, balancing acts that we're always in drive our moods, our thoughts, and our behaviors, right? They're driving us. So you're like, uh, I think maybe you don't even have the thought necessarily, right? So sometimes we have this, this subconscious stuff. It's just like we find ourselves standing in front of the refrigerator or in my case, the freezer with a bar of chocolate in our hands. <laughs> How did I get here? How did I get here? How did this chocolate get in my mouth? <laughs> and so we find ourselves doing, engaging in behaviors and sometimes we're not even conscious of them, right? That's because there's this subconscious stuff going on and you're getting messages from the body going, blood sugar needs to regulate chocolate or whatever. Like hopefully you're not just reaching for chocolate. You're, you know, you're having a nice nourishing meal. But you know, that, those sorts of behaviors sometimes come into our mind and we, we engage in behaviors because we're not necessarily all that conscious of them. That 70%, well, actually that's not, that's not accurate. The, the scientists say between 80 and 95%, I've heard some scientists say, of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors lie below the level of consciousness, meaning they're habitual, you know? Mm. So, so you can see like when, when you're like, in, so instead of just like, I find myself in front of the freezer with the 85% chocolate in my hand going into my mouth, right? And, and even finding myself implies some kind of mindfulness application, right? So, and, and a lot of people don't even find themselves. It's just the chocolate goes into the mouth and they move on to the next thing. And there's not even a conscious thought with it. And then we end up with, and I, I you know, cho chocolate's probably a bad example. I should be talking about like McDonald's French fries or something, you know, because then we end up with things like depression and chronic pain and obesity and um, many chronic illnesses, heart disease. Um, and, and these things are often arising because of subconscious or unconscious behavior patterns that are largely driven by body states over which we could have more control if we understood how to build that skill. So, so is in the same vein as, you know, say you've had a really stressful day at work and you come home and you sit in, on the couch and you turn on the TV in the semi-conscious urge to regulate your stress state your stress hormones. Is that the same thing? No, but it's a really good, really good segue. Okay. <laughs> because because I, I call it the Netflix and wine solution. Um, and Netflix and wine is a great solution to stress sometimes. You know, I'm not suggesting don't engage in those behaviors, but do them mindfully like, okay, now I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and drink some wine because I really need to chill out right now. Mm -hmm. But that is, a, that is a way to numb the nervous system from the feelings of the pain, whereas slow, mindful practice 
is a way to train the nervous system. It's an active engagement way to train the nervous system to become more resilient. And that's a different thing. Netflix and wine solution is really good short term. I, I, I get it. You know, I, I engage in it myself. I'm not into drinking wine, but I engage in the Netflix and chocolate stuff myself. And it's a solution for sure, you know, but it doesn't have the long-term benefits of training the nervous system that slow mindful practice does. So whereas, you know, cardiovascular exercise is really good for training the cardiovascular system and, and uh, building, you know, building muscle and detoxing the body, all the wonderful things that cardiovascular exercise does. Slow mindful practice is a way of training the nervous system to become more resilient because you're able to have more capacity to come back to homeostatic balance, to come back to balance in a conscious way rather than just engaging in these unconscious behaviors. So you bring, bring your awareness into consciousness. This isn't anything terribly new. Carl Jung many, many years ago said, obviously, because he lived many years ago, <laughs> said that... Um, we don't become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the unconscious conscious, right? So that, it's a psychological principle that's been around for a long time, but now we're starting to understand the neurophysiology of it, which is really exciting to me. Because now I have something to say when people are like, oh, I don't have time for that slow, mindful stuff. I only have so much time to exercise, you know? Well, good. Exercise is good. You should exercise. And if you've got a three-time-a-week exercise practice, add a two or three times a week mindful awareness practice because that is going to benefit you in ways that you can't get through your cardiovascular exercise. And I can go a little bit deeper there if you want me to. Sure. Great. So let's talk about um, what I like to call the perception universe. So there's, and, and technically this would be called viscerosomatic processing, but I like to call it the perception universe because it's a little easier to understand. So basically, you've got all the stuff going on all the time around you, and you have all the stuff going on inside of you all the time, right? And, and you can pay attention to some of it or not pay attention to any of it, but the reality is most of us, to survive, we have to pay attention to something. So mostly, we're paying attention to what's going on outside of us right? So like, am I in a safe place? If I'm driving my car, am I safe? Do I have my car on the right lane? Is anybody coming into me? This is called exteroception. And we get that in yoga practice when people come to our yoga class and they look around and they're like, I'm in a safe room. The music's not too loud. The people have friendly faces. I feel welcome. That's, you're satisfying that exteroception for them. So this is the first thing we want to work with with people. Now, there's an, the, 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 this perception universe goes deeper and it's hierarchical. So the next thing that keeps you kind of safe helps you to feel something different than safety. It helps you to feel a sense of yourself and a sense of mastery and a sense of competence. And that's called proprioception. So proprioception is basically like, where is my body in space? What's my body doing? Where is it in space? If I know where my body's in space, you know, my son likes to do those little dances from, um, from um, what's that video game called? Um, I'm forgetting the name of I'm it. I'm not the right person to ask. 
<laughs> oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. I have to put on a different. Anyway, there's this video game that's so popular. Some is it like Dance Dance Revolution? Oh, yeah, what I'm talking about? What Dance Dance Revolution? No, 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 no. It's this video game. It's a battle video game. It's like the Hunger Games, and I can't remember the name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Sorry, I've got girls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just funny. There's, I'll, I'll remember it in a second. But anyway, so there's this video game that he likes to play, and there's all these little dances in the video game. Like when they win something, they this character will come up and do a dance. And so my son loves to do, he'll like get up and do the dance. And, and I'm like, wow, you can do that dance. That's pretty cool. I'm like, I try and do it. I'm like, oh, I don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> like I'm an old lady trying to do cool little kid dances. That's a function of proprioception is where is my body in space and what is my body doing? Now in yoga class, when somebody like nails a handstand for the first time or, you know, they're able to do some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of dancer balance stretch or some kind of a, they're in a low lunge and they're able to go to a high lunge for the first time, those sorts of things that people do. It, it confers this tremendous sense of competence and mastery and sort of like feeling good about yourself, self-esteem, feeling good about yourself. So that's proprioception. And proprioception is great, but that's not the end of yoga, right? So that's one thing that people get out of yoga. And you also get a lot of proprioception out of any kind of exercise. And then the third the, the third part of the perception universe, there's many parts of the perception universe, but I'm just categorizing it this way to make it a little easier to understand. The third part of the perception universe is something that's called interoception. Inter with an O, interoception. So interoception is how does my body feel, right? And so when we get to how does my body feel, then we can start working with getting back to homeostatic balance, getting more balance. So how does my body feel in a certain posture? Um, one of my favorite phrases to teach in class is the pause is just as important as the pose. The pause is just as important as the pose because the pause is a time to start noticing what just happened in your body and how it changed. And through that awareness and noticing, we start to make neuroplastic changes in the brain, particularly in the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex and parts of the cortex, parts of the front brain, right? So we start to make, we start to make changes in the brain by noticing how we feel. We can notice how we feel when we do slow, mindful movement. When you're doing faster stuff, sweatier stuff, you tend to stay in the realm of proprioception because you've got to figure out where your body is or you're going to fall out of that handstand, right? Whereas when you're doing the slow, mindful movement, then you start noticing sensations in your body. And that awareness of sensations is really key for making changes to your nervous system and being able to come back to balance more easily. And this is going to be large, you know, very helpful in reducing chronic uh, health challenges, including chronic mental health challenges like depression and anxiety. Yeah. Is this making sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of dense, but I hope, I hope, that's, I hope it's starting to make sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's right up my alley, so. <laughs> but I do notice that I'm having to. I'm tr I'm taking notes as I go, and I'm definitely like needing yeah. all my resources to follow <laughs> along and take notes. But I will make those notes available to okay. my listeners, and then 
hopefully those who are interested in really kind of, you know, because every time you listen to something, you get, you get what you're ready to get. Right. And then the things that you're not ready for, they don't sink in, but maybe the next time. So this might be an episode that people might want to listen to multiple yeah. times if it's, okay. yeah. Well, feel free. So, <laughs> I want, I, but I need to go just a little bit further with it. Do it. Do it. Okay. So, so yoga shtita vritti naroda, right? Yoga is about stopping the fluctuations of the mind, right? So mindful, slow practice, asana practice, breathing practice, meditation practice takes us to a place where we can let the mind calm down. Tada drashtu swarupe avastanam, because then when you slow the mind, then you can understand who you are, right? Mm -hmm. So interoception, interoceptive practices are not just about sort of, I feel how my body feels and then I can adapt and make adjustments so I come back to balance more easily. That's great. Yeah. But, but they're also about starting to feel who you are. So, so I'm starting to feel myself, I'm starting to really sense, getting this felt sense of who I am as a human being, how I feel about things. As I start to know how I feel, then I get a clearer sense of who I am. Mm -hmm. And as I get a clearer sense of who I am, we started talking about this before, then I, then I know what I want to do in the world. And I know how to act. And I know what my boundaries are. I know what I want to do. I know what I don't want to do. I know who I am. I know what I don't want to be. Like all of those things. We start to get this. And, and from yoga philosophy, this is a function of the subtle body of the heart chakra, of sort of knowing my identity, who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing with myself, and what my life is about. And, and so this practice isn't just about like, you know, helping your depression or, or helping your chronic pain, although it's amazing for doing those things. It's also uncovering who I am, what my identity is. And as I start to understand my swadharma, my identity, I can have a clearer sense of taking effective action in the world that, um, that really helps me to self-actualize, you know, and become more of who I'm, I'm, I could be, what my potential is. Yeah. Such a privilege for us to have the time and ability to work on this. Yeah. And this is, this is something that I think is, is getting missed there. There's this tendency, I think with social media and, and, you know, even the mainstream, whatever the television media and all of that to focus on the, the drama of the day. <laughs> and I've been recently, um, listening to the audiobook version of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Have you, have you read that one? No, I don't. I, I'm not aware of it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I highly recommend it and I'll link to it in the show notes also. But a great portion of the book is laying out the science for how humans right now are as a whole way better off, like multitudes uh, exponentially better off than we've ever been. And we have more capacity to engage in this kind of exploration. Like more people can do this. More people are in a position of having the free time, the safety, and the, the knowledge and the access to the knowledge to be able to work on this stuff than ever before. 
Mm-hmm. I I think that's that it's such an amazing, beautiful time in history in many respects because of that. And for me, what it what that really compels me that that knowledge compels me to think about or to do is to work towards social justice. And and I feel that as as people when we when we have been afforded the luxury of these practices that it's almost like a mission or a calling for yoga practitioners to, to figure out how we can share these practices with more people. And, and going back to that idea that only 20% of the population exercises, 80% of the population doesn't exercise because they don't know it's good for them. Right. You know, largely, they don't exercise because of many social determinants of health that keep them essentially disenfranchised from from that kind of you know that kind of activity and so so i think uh, one of the things that you know i'm not suggesting everybody it's everybody's dharma to go out there and do this but i think i think as yoga practitioners in our communities we have some potential and ability to share these practices with larger numbers of people. And many of the people that might not exercise because it's just too hard for them can do slow mindful movement. Yeah. And as somebody who teaches a class that is called gentle flow, you know, the, the funny thing about the names of the classes is that it depends on who you are. So I get people who come to my class. It's not gentle for them. Right. Right. I mean, it's safe. I teach safe yoga. I teach very, you know, reasonable ranges of motion and I move slowly. But for them, it's a workout. They are sweating (laughs) in my gentle class. And then there's other people who are like, yeah, I only come when I'm on my moon cycle. (laughs) It's so so nourishing. It's so gentle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, people have different ideas. And, and also, it's, it's like, what is the venue? What is the location? Because I think we have to, as a yoga community, be a little bit broader about the way we conceptualize how we deliver our service. You know, just yoga studios or fitness centers, like there's lots of other places that yoga can be taught, you know, and I think that if we start to kind of broaden that that capacity, then we can teach like a gentle class in a doctor's office and chairs and people don't have to feel like somehow they're uh, inadequate because that's how they're doing yoga, you know, rather like it's everybody's doing it like that. And, and that's a good way to do it. And, and we're not sort of looking at it just like it's fitness. And so that one of the ways that I like to define yoga, as I say, there's fitness yoga great and the you know there's the a purpose of fitness yoga could be that we're you know we're looking to build more cardiovascular um, health we're looking to build greater strength we're looking for you know car- cardiovascular fitness flexibility stamina so I call that fitness yoga and then on the other side I say and we also have a different goal and I call it resilience yoga Resilience yoga is we're trying to build more awareness and mindfulness and physiologic balance in the system and greater mental health and nervous system resilience. Um, and so there's, there's different, and it's not that these two things are completely separate. They're not. It's just models to kind of help people understand, like, do your fitness. That's great. And then also do your resilience because this is going to have a different effect on your nervous system. It's going to be 
more sustainable and it's going to be something you do the rest of your life and it's going to make you more resilient for whatever life's challenges get thrown at you. But you get a little bit of that from fitness yoga too, but this is uh, fitness yoga tends to be more in that proprioceptive category. Whereas resilience is you're going into this interoceptive stuff that just, I think it's, you know, that's why I'm calling the, the, um, online course I just created, the Slow Yoga Revolution, because I really think it's going to be revolutionary in the way that we understand health. And, and this is, this is going to be, in my opinion, this is the next big thing. We'll see if I'm right. <laughs> well, it's at least the next big thing for some people, right? Yeah. You know, for some that, that's as yoga teachers, our, our swadharma is to figure out what is it that I can see and offer that people need sure. and then focus on that, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it, who, who, however many people you end up helping, you end up helping people. Yes. My husband always likes to say, even if you've lived your life and only helped one person, then your life has been meaningful. And right. He's, he's a bit of a little wise yogi himself. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, going back to that, that statistic that you mentioned about only 10% of the population doing yoga. I think that's a really important thing for yoga teachers to, to take in because there's a lot of chatter about saturation in the yoga market. And Uh, it's only saturated if we're all trying to fill the same niche, if we're all trying to teach at the same studio. But if you start looking to who can I serve, who's not already doing yoga Mm-hmm. It real. I mean, you're looking at ninety percent of people. There, I mean, there is so, people do not do yoga. <laughs> there, there is so much potential yes. for for somebody who is able to see a need, to see a challenge and a need, and a population that they have access to and can connect with, yep. and find a way to help them. I totally agree with that. I think we have to look at it the other way around. And, but the other thing is that as trainers, you know, you and I are both trainers, that I feel like it's part of my obligation to help create more um, opportunities for yoga teachers to serve outside of the traditional yoga studio fitness center locations. And, and I think that, and that's one of the things I've been working on for several years is uh, the integration of yoga into the healthcare system and how yoga can benefit public and population health in ways that is not really being conceptualized yet. So I've been working on some papers around that. I'm going to be publishing some, well, yeah, I've got I've got a couple that I've already published. I've got two papers I've already published in the in Yoga Therapy Today, which is a publication of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, and then I'm I'm also working on another paper um, on the integration of yoga into population health because I do think it's so important for us to be creative about how we're sharing this stuff. One on one can work in some markets. It can be a great way to share yoga, but there's tons of people that are not being served and partly cost is a barrier. So we have to figure out ways, you know, really creative ways. I'm not saying that yoga teachers should all teach for free. I don't believe that. I think if you have the means to teach for free, great, go ahead and do it. But I think for those of us who need to make a living at this, I think there's lots of creative ways we can get reimbursed and, uh, or we can, we can be paid for, um, for teaching yoga. And then we can reach lots of populations that aren't being served. Absolutely. And those articles that you referenced, are they, are they available? Can I, will I be able to link to them in the show notes? 
You know, I will, I can send you PDFs. Okay. If you want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I'll that'd send be great. PDFs of them because I think they're online somewhere, but it's probably harder to find. Okay. If, put them in the show notes. Yeah. Perfect. And do you have any other things, any thoughts, any concepts that you were hoping to share today that you haven't touched on yet or anything else that's come to you? Oh my gosh. I feel like I've just really kind of given a lot of content in a short amount of time, but (laughs) (laughs) totally. It's been great. Did I not touch on something? Um, (laughs) I just, I don't want to, I don't want to stop and and have you be like, well, there was this one thing I meant to say. This one thing I meant. No, I really like, for me, it's really important to talk about the, to talk about interoception in the context of identity and, and, and no, and sort of that deeper understanding of who we are. But, but I feel like I, I feel like I covered that pretty well and already. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm good with that. Awesome. And how can listeners find you if they want to find out more about you? Or I know you have a, a free download that's going to be available by the time this episode is released. How yeah. can they get that? Okay, so my, the series that I have coming out is called The Slow Yoga Revolution. Um, my website is subtleyoga.com. That's S-U-B-T-L-E, subtleyoga.com. And so, yeah, so my my online program is going to be available this month, actually. Uh, oh, no, this month is July. It's going to be available in August. Which is when this is going to be released. Yeah. Okay, okay. So it will be this month. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so my online program is available this month. I have a free uh, PDF about um, how slow practices can help your health, can benefit your health. And then I have a short course, which talks about how slow practices can benefit fatigue, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and body image weight management issues. And then those are accompanied by short, like 20 minute practices to demonstrate the principles of practice. PDFs are also available uh, from the PowerPoint. And, um, and that's a, you know, it's, it's not a really long course, but that'll give you some good information uh, in terms of the neurobiology of how this stuff works, of how slow practice works. And then I'm going to have a long course come out at the end of August, a longer course, maybe 10 hours. And that is called the neurobiology of the eight limbs of yoga. So we'll get into the slow practices as they apply, not just to asanas, but also to ethics, pranayama and meditation. Yeah. Great. And, and the first step to just getting any of that is to just go to your yeah. website and sign up for that free download. Yep. Awesome. My free download. Yep. Well, this was super interesting, Kaveri. I loved, I loved talking to you about this and um, I'm really grateful that you came on to share this with my audience. Well, thank you, Mado. It's always nice to chat with you, especially when we geek out on yoga stuff. So. Totally. <laughs> So thank you. (laughs) Wasn't that good, you guys? If this topic is up your alley, I hope you do check out Coveri's free download on the topic at subtleyoga.com and also look into her new online courses about the neurobiology of yoga. I asked Coveri for an action item that you can take to apply this information to your yoga classes. 
And what she invites you to do is to notice what language and cues you typically use during your classes. For example, are your instructions exteroceptive, proprioceptive, or interoceptive? Probably there'll be a, you know, a mix of them, but a lot of people really are focused on proprioceptive cueing. If you haven't already, try incorporating more interoceptive cues into your teaching and also let your students know that this type of practice will help them develop a greater sense of self-awareness and physiologic balance. Interoceptive cues are instructions to notice internal experiences. For example, notice how that feels. Notice how far apart your feet are. Notice if it feels comfortable but a bit challenging. Notice your belly moving with your breath, etc. Subscribers to my email list will have access to a chart detailing the differences between exteroceptive, proprioceptive, and interoceptive cues and the benefits of each. If you want to get access to that, as well as all the bonus resources for all the podcast episodes and continuing going on, so each week I send out an email that provides a little synopsis of that week's episode and also access to any bonus resources if there are any. They're not every single week, but every few episodes there are. You can go to teachingyoga.net slash join. I'd also love for you to let me know what you think about this episode on the private Facebook group for this podcast. You can become a member from the same page as where you join the email list, teachingyoga.net slash join. I want to give out a shout out to my Spotify listeners. I recently did a search for the keyword yoga on Spotify podcasts, and I was surprised to see that this podcast is in the top 10 search results for yoga. It felt like a huge validation for me because I haven't even been trying to compete for that keyword, the keyword yoga, because I thought it was too general. So thank you all for paying attention and for caring so much about your teaching, no matter how you listen. I really appreciate that you do. I have not asked for reviews in a while, and I noticed that people stopped leaving them. So hey, if you've been meaning to leave a review, I would absolutely love to see your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I didn't see a place to leave a review on Spotify, but if you know how to do that, please take a minute and write one. I would be so grateful. Thank you again for the love and support, friends. I will see you next week.